turning again tonight to Luke 18, just three verses this evening, verses 28 through 30, Luke 18, 28 through 30. You'll recall that before we come to these verses, Jesus has just finished telling a man that if he really wants to follow him, he should sell everything that he owns, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And he turned away sad because he owned so much. He had so many possessions. And in response to that man turning away sad, we read this. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, uh, it's, it's true what we just were singing. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. You promise good to us in this passage tonight and I pray that you would help us to see what you promise to see what the conditions are of that promise to see the good that you will do to us if we will follow you and to bank on your word that our hope would be secure in it so God as we listen to your son and listen to your word tonight speak to us we pray now in Jesus name amen We finished up on Sunday with the wonderful reminder in verse 27 that the things which are impossible with people are possible with God. Of course, we remember that Jesus made that statement primarily in response to the question, verse 26, who can be saved? And what he was saying, in other words, was this, if what is required is for you and I to procure eternal life by keeping the commandments of God perfectly, by loving God with all of our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves, then who can be saved? Who can get to heaven if perfect obedience, which is humanly impossible, is required? No one. That was the point on Sunday. And yet, Jesus says, the things which are impossible with people are possible with God because what we could never do, namely keep God's commandments perfectly, Jesus has done on our behalf. And not only that, but he's died under the penalty that we deserve for not having done so. And he's risen from the dead on the third day to prove that it's all true. And so we rejoice, and we rejoiced on Sunday, that when it comes to our obtaining eternal life, the things which are impossible with people are possible with God. But we're going to see this evening that that wonderful statement there in verse 27 does not apply only to eternal life. It's also a hope-giving word about this life as well because there are things in this life that in our sinful human nature and in our finite human nature are quite impossible for us to do. And yet, with God and with the new heart that he gives to those who are his children and with the Holy Spirit residing in that new heart, certain things which are humanly impossible actually become reality in our lives. Some of you have seen this happening for you and in you in your Christian life, haven't you? You used to think that you would never be able to kick that habit, and you tried for years to do it and couldn't do it. And then one day, God came along and he began to work in your life, and what seemed impossible is now reality. 
Or maybe it was that you thought you'd never get through to that coworker, to that family member with the gospel. Their heart was just too hard, and they'd never believe. And then one day the Holy Spirit came on the scene and everything just clicked. And so I say that if we're born again, if the Spirit is living inside of us, we realize that verse 27 applies not only to getting to heaven, but it applies to lots of other things as well. Yes, it applies supremely to the human impossibility that we could ever go to heaven on our own. But it also applies to a thousand other areas of Christian growth and Christian service, sanctification, and all sorts of other Christian endeavors. Things that, apart from Christ, you could never, ever do become realities in your life when you belong to Jesus. And verses 28 through 30 this evening give testimony to just how that can be so. Now, again, we saw in verses 22 through 25 how difficult it is for a person to give up their wealth, to give up their possessions, and to do so in order to follow Jesus. In fact, we said on Sunday, and we should say again tonight, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is actually impossible that anyone would ever choose a God and a kingdom that they cannot see over a lifestyle and a home and a bank account that's at their very fingertips. Jesus asked this rich young ruler to do something that humanly was impossible And yet, if this young man had been born again, if he had possessed the new heart that he needed, if he had been willing to leave behind his sins, he would have been able to leave behind his money and his possessions too. And the reason I know that he would have been able to do that is because now in verses 28 through 30, we're reminded that Peter and the other apostles did just that, didn't they? Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. Peter and his companions actually did what is humanly impossible. But how did they do it? Well, it wasn't because they were better men than the rich young ruler, and it wasn't because they were somehow any less sinners than he was. It was just as impossible, it was just as unlikely for them to walk away from everything as it was for him to walk away from everything. But they did it. They did it. Now, just think about this situation. Just think about Peter and James and John and Andrew, four of the the primary apostles that we're told about in the New Testament. Those four men were in business together, fishing. That was their livelihood. And at least on the part of James and John, they had followed their father into the family trade so that he was a part of the business and he must have been at least partially financially dependent upon their help, upon their being in the business with him. But then one day along comes Jesus and calls these men to quit their jobs immediately and begin traveling about the country as his entourage with no idea of where this all would lead and no financial promises and no place to lay their heads. So how in the world do four men come to the decision to drop everything that they've ever known, to quit the family business, to leave their homes with no promises about what the future will hold, to give up their livelihood, and to follow a man who at this point when they began following him was, for all they knew, just a religious upstart. How does that happen? Well, it only happens because the things which are impossible with people are possible with God. The disciples did something which, if we are honest, all of us will admit would be impossible for us to do unless God took our hand like he grabbed hold of the hand of Lot in the little town of Sodom and God 
pulled us through all of our doubts and fears and idolatries to himself. And yet, if God takes us by the hand, if Jesus comes to us like he came to these disciples, the things that were once impossible for us to do, the things that we could have never imagined ourselves doing as unbelievers, simply become everyday parts of the Christian life. And again, you've seen that happen in large and small scale in your own lives, I'm sure. What was possible, what was impossible, I should say, for the rich young ruler was just the normal Christian life for Peter and his companions. And so I just say to start out, isn't the juxtaposition of verses 27 and 28 marvelous? Jesus says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God, and as if to confirm that truth, though perhaps without realizing he was doing it, Peter says, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And you'd almost, he doesn't do it, but you would almost expect Jesus to say, See, I told you. The things that are impossible with people, they're possible with God. Someone can be called to leave everything and follow me and actually do it. And in that regard, looking at these disciples and as a first heading, I want to say that this passage serves us as an example. That's the first thing. This passage is an example to us. These disciples are an example to us. And they're an example, as we've been hinting at already, that it can be done. Yes, God sometimes asks us to do hard things for the sake of his kingdom. Some of us, he may ask to leave our homes and our families like these disciples had done. Many of us, he asks to endure suffering. Others of us, at times, he asks to confront sin in other people, and that's very hard to do. Sometimes he asks us to give up certain long-term habits for the sake of our testimony, habits that can be incredibly hard for us to kick. Some he may ask to go back to school to prepare for full-time ministry, and you give up a lot if you do that. Others he may just say, I want you to lead a Bible study, and it's a big risk for you because you're not sure if you can do it. And then there are just all the daily decisions that we have to make, things like biting our tongue, obeying the governing authorities, forgiving other people when they sin against us, not giving up on our crazy kids, sharing the gospel when we're afraid, tithing our income, being in God's word and prayer. All the time, God is asking us to do these things, and no one ever said the Christian life would be easy, right? In fact, if you compare your life as a Christian with your unbelieving family and co-workers, you realize that there are a great many things that you are required to do to which they never give even a thought. You live on 90% of your income. Your friends don't. You have to apologize when you get angry at work. Your friends don't. You've got to give time to God and his word each day. Your friends don't think about that. Your conscience smites you about your eating habits or your internet habits or how you speak to your kids. But your friends don't have to think about those things. And so I say it's a hard thing to walk in the light, to live your life with the constant knowledge that God sees what you're doing and he cares what you're doing and he has a calling upon your life. But Luke 18, 28 reminds us that it can be done. Remember these disciples. They had quit their jobs They left their hometown, they said goodbye to their relatives, and they embarked on this mission trip that had no discernible itinerary, no fundraising mechanism, no foreseeable end. They didn't know if they'd ever get to have their homes back or their jobs back. 
and yet they left them. They did the hard things just the same. And then ponder something else about these men following Jesus. You think it's hard for you to live sometimes knowing that God sees everything that you're doing? Well, imagine what it would be like if you actually lived with God made flesh for three years and he was with you every waking moment. And yet the disciples did that. They left their homes and they followed Jesus and they walked in the light of his presence all the way until the end. But why? How were they able to do that? Again, not because they were ultra-spiritual men, no. The gospel accounts reveal that that was far from the case. These men were just like us. So how were they able to embark on such a journey? How were they able to walk with Christ like this so sacrificially? How were they able to walk in his presence without going insane with despair over their unworthiness? Well, it's all because the things which are impossible with people are possible with God. It can be done. And so I just ask you, by way of application, what is it for you? What is the hard thing about the Christian life for you? If you can't think of anything that's hard about the Christian life, then you're probably not living the Christian life or not how you should be. Because God's always asking hard things of his people who are filled with his spirit. In order to prove that the strength is his and not ours, he asks us to do things that are too difficult for us. So what are those things for you? What are the hard things? Surely all of us can think of sin habits we need to break. Some of us may think of relationships that are heartrending or frustrating, and we just need to pursue them and maintain them anyway for the sake of Christ. Others of us have work to do in the church that requires uh, effort and prayer. Some of us may have difficult apologies that we know we need to make, and it's hanging over our head, but it just seems too hard. Somebody may be wrestling with a calling to leave home and family like these disciples did and, and to serve Jesus in full-time service. But what is it for you? What is it that God is asking you to do? And it's hard. Think about that for a moment. And while you think, let me remind you that if you belong to Jesus, the same Holy Spirit who drew Peter and his companions to Christ and who indwelled them thereafter lives in you as well. The same help is available to you. If they left their homes and their families and their incomes and their careers, then surely you can do whatever hard things God's asking of you. These men with the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit living inside of them are an example that it can be done. But let me also say briefly that they're an example that it must be done. Whatever it is for you, it can be done, it must be done. When Jesus walked along the seashore back in the early parts of the Gospel of Luke and he called Peter and Andrew and James and John to leave their nets and to follow him, he expected that they would do it. That they would do it now and that they would do it completely. And so they only had two options. They could either obey or they could rebel. And there was no middle route for them whereby they could serve Jesus but not actually follow him and do the hard things that he asked. Either they went through with what he asked, or they didn't. And the same is true of us, isn't it? If Jesus asks you to follow him in some way, whether it's a great thing or a small thing, there's no middle route whereby you can sidestep what he's asking you to do, but still faithfully serve him equally in some other way of your own choosing. No. Whatever he calls you to do, it must be done. And I want to be careful, obviously, to say that our eternal salvation doesn't depend upon whether we dot every I and cross every T. 
No, we just finished arguing on Sunday that to earn heaven by our obedience to God is impossible. We have to apply to him for grace. We have to trust what Jesus has done and not what we do. And I say that again tonight. And I don't undercut that by now saying that obedience to Jesus must be done. Obedience doesn't save us, but obedience must be done. So what I'm saying now is simply that if you have been bought with Jesus' blood, if you have been forgiven of your sins, if you have been given a new heart, and if the Holy Spirit is living within you, that means you have no excuse for shirking Christian responsibility. And it's true that you and I won't always follow through like we know we should, and there's grace for that. But if we have truly been saved by God's grace, we realize that there is no excuse for our not following through. And that we must repent when we don't. And we understand that our half-obedience cannot be pawned off as somehow pleasing to God. And if we're Christians, we know that the next time God asks us to do a hard thing, he expects us simply to do it, trusting that he will give us grace to do so. So let me ask you again before we leave this first heading, what is the hard thing for you? What is the thing that you know God wants you to do, but it's just been so hard for you to take the first steps or for you to follow through after the first steps and to actually do it? Well, this passage is a reminder, praise God, that those hard things can be done. And it's a reminder that with the help of the Spirit of God, they must be done. And so whatever it is for you, I pray that you'll do it. That's the first thing this evening. This passage provides us with an example, an example of obedience. But it also contains, secondly, an implication, an implication. And this is where we come to the promise that Jesus makes in verses 29 and 30. These men, remember, had left their homes, and Jesus promised them in these two verses that anyone who does that, anyone who leaves home or family for the sake of the kingdom of God, will be rewarded. And we'll come back under the next heading and talk about that promise and about the rewards that Jesus mentions there. But before we get there, I want you to see that indirectly, at least, verses 29 through 30 teach us something very important about the Christian life. These two verses contain a very important implication about the relationship between family and home and the kingdom of God. And we'll do well to pause for several minutes and notice the implication that's there. And allow me to put the implication to you simply in the form of a question. If a person is rewarded for leaving house or wife or parents or brothers or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, if you're rewarded for leaving those things for the sake of the kingdom, then which is more important in God's economy? Home and family or the kingdom of God? Well, the answer has to be the latter, right? What Jesus is implying in verses 29 through 30 is that the kingdom of God is to be our primary allegiance, even more so than family ties. The kingdom of God is so important, Jesus says, that in order to enter it yourself or in order to spread it to others, Jesus may call you to leave home or to leave family and to follow him the way these apostles did because the kingdom of God is more valuable than even the most important of human relationships. Now let me be clear, let me insert something here so that we make sure we don't miss this. When Jesus speaks about leaving wife or children or parents, he's not encouraging abandonment or neglect. In fact, Paul reminds us that to neglect, to care for our family is to deny the faith and to behave worse than an unbeliever. 
So the picture in verses 29 and 30 is not a man deciding, God's called me to China and then leaving for China and leaving his wife and children to fend for themselves here in Cincinnati. That's not the picture. Nor is this a picture of a pastor neglecting his family because, well, I've got so much church work to do. Nor is a picture of a young man or young woman telling his or her parents that they will have to fend for themselves in old age because I'm going to give to the Lottie Moon offering all the money that I might have used to help you. None of those things are the kind of leaving that Jesus has in mind, and I hope we all hear that well this evening. Nevertheless, it must be said that the reality was that all 12 of these disciples did leave home to follow him. And 11 of them eventually went to the ends of the earth for the sake of the kingdom of God, such that their parents and their brothers and their sisters and their hometowns and their childhood friends, they never saw them again. They left everything to follow Jesus. And they remind us that the kingdom is indeed more important to God than home and than the nuclear family. And it should be to us as well. And there are a number of ways that I want to just apply that. They may not all land equally applicable to each person, but there are a number of ways that this applies. The first is that these two verses imply that we ought never allow family concerns to keep us from entering the kingdom of God in the first place, right? If a spouse or a parent or a child tries to prevent someone coming to Jesus in faith and repentance, then we choose Jesus over the spouse or the parent or the child. That doesn't mean we abandon them. It doesn't mean we turn... Uh, away from them, but it does mean that we don't turn away from Jesus if they abandon us. It doesn't mean we disrespect people, but it means we respect God more than people. And if it comes down to it, we choose Christ over family. Also, this will be applicable to many of us, these verses mean that we should choose obedience to Christ over family. That is to say, let's say that you've already made a commitment to follow Christ, and many of you have, and your family has at least partially accepted that commitment but at various points in order to satisfy family tradition or in order to keep them from feeling bad about their own sins your family tries to paint you into a corner where you have to choose between obeying God and obeying family tradition and they make you feel guilty perhaps for even considering doing the former well these verses urge you to obey God to play by the rules of his kingdom, not their rules. And, of course, you can do that quietly and unobtrusively and respectfully, but you must obey God rather than men. And then another implication would be that as parents and as grandparents, some of you, this will be thinking 20 years into the future, some of you will be thinking right now, but as parents and grandparents, we need to allow and even encourage our children to leave us for the sake of the kingdom of God. Parents and grandparents should never make their children feel guilty about wanting to serve God on the mission field or away from home, whether short-term or long. Indeed, all of us who are parents and who someday will be parents should raise our children in such a way that they'll be encouraged to go if God calls them, in such a way that they know mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are going to be thrilled when they hear the news that I'm thinking about moving to China or Iraq for the sake of the gospel. There are a few things better for a young person who's thinking about following Christ and advancing his kingdom than for their parents to support them. And there are a few things worse than to know that their parents or grandparents are not behind them 100% 
and what they want to do for God. And the same thing can be said for wives. If your husband is thinking of following Christ in some way, whether it's ministry or some other venture for the Lord, support your husband. Don't allow your desire to have a certain kind of home or a certain kind of lifestyle or to live in a certain kind of neighborhood impede God's calling on your family's life. And just speaking to myself and thinking about pastors, it said that an unusually high number of pastors live within a two-hour radius of their wife's mother. Now, I know full well that God has called some of those men to live within that two-hour radius, but I also know that some of them are there because their wives and their parents and the claims of family sometimes take precedent over the calling of God, and we mustn't allow that to be so, any of us. And then there's one other thing to say. This is a, a kind of a broader thing regarding the implication that the kingdom of God is more valuable even than our family. And that is that we must be very discerning about all the plethora of family-oriented books and conferences and radio programs and so on that have presented themselves over the last 30 years. We have to be careful when we listen. Now, much of what is there and much of what is being said and written is good, especially given the alarming rate at which our culture is discarding the biblical portrait of family. We need to be reminded of our obligation as parents and children and husbands and wives in this culture. Indeed, I did some of that reminding a couple of Sundays ago. But now what I'm saying on the other side is we need to be careful of a pendulum swing. That is to say that sometimes Christians in our day, in their rush to defend family values and to emphasize the importance of the home and to commend the value of Christian parenting, rush so eagerly into extolling the virtues of family that they begin to bypass or at least to assume the far more important and valuable truths of the gospel. And I just want to give you an example of what I mean. There are Christians who, in a well-meaning attempt to promote the lost American value of parenting and family, begin to substitute good parenting for good news. They begin to try to use the family to accomplish what only the gospel can accomplish. And it happens in a couple of ways. These are ways that I don't see happening here, but I just want to warn you so that you see them. You can help your friends. You can help yourself by being ahead of the game. On the one hand, there are people who assume that if they simply raise their children in the church and under the teaching of the scriptures, the children will surely be Christian. And because they make that assumption, they neglect to teach their children that the Bible calls for personal repentance and personal faith in Christ for their personal sins. So it's not that these people reject faith and repentance as necessary for other people, but they assume that their children are already in good shape because of the family into which they've been born and because of the good rearing that they're receiving at home. And so they assume that as long as they faithfully rear those children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the children are believers unless they prove themselves blatantly otherwise. And that's a dangerous error to raise your children up thinking that because we are raising you and you know the stuff and we're raising you right and our family is so much different than all the other families, then that's what makes us Christians because it raises up a generation of Pharisees who think that being a Christian means understanding the Bible and coming from a good family and raising a good family someday yourself. 
just so that you can recognize this teaching uh, that's out there because it's often more subtle than I'm explaining it now. It goes under the title of the Federal Vision. So if you're just reading around on the internet and you find something about the Federal Vision, this is what it is. Your parents are Christians. They raise you right. You're a Christian. And while I don't doubt that most people who are in this movement believe the gospel for themselves because they are overestimating the capability of a good family, they're bypassing the gospel when it comes to their children. They think that family life makes their children Christians. This is dangerous. And then there's another way that well-meaning Christians sometimes replace the gospel with the family, and it's in the realm of missions and evangelism. And this is something that may be even a little more of a danger to us as a church someday down the road. That is to say, some Christians look out on the culture. They look out on the state of our country, and they realize that every generation there are fewer and fewer people following Christ. And every generation there are more and more professed atheists and Muslims and more and more people who are following the tenets of Eastern mysticism in their various forms. All those things are on the rise. And so people see that, and they rightly conclude, Christians need to do something. But some people say Christians need to do something, and they come to the conclusion that what needs to be done is that all Christians need to have more children so that we can raise more children as Christians so that the gospel will be more widely believed in our culture because we have procreated But that's not the solution that the New Testament gives to the predicament of a lost culture, is it? There's nothing wrong with having children, right? There's certainly nothing wrong with raising your children for Jesus, and those kind of children will certainly make a difference in the culture. But what does Jesus say about growing the church and advancing God's kingdom on the earth? Does he say go into all the world and procreate, or does he say go into all the world and preach the gospel? It's the latter, isn't it? So the solution, in other words, for the lostness that's all around us is not in our families. It's in the gospel of Jesus. And there's a variation of this teaching that that floats around in conservative circles that doesn't say, well, we need to have more children and our culture will be fixed. It just says we just need to restore family values and our culture will be fixed. And we need to restore family values, but the gospel changes the culture. The gospel fixes the culture. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say, well, the family's not important. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And I know these last couple things are sort of tangential. They're things for you to just kind of watch for on the horizon. But when we consider what Jesus says here about the value of the kingdom over the value of the family, we need to think about all the ways that it implies to our situation and to the generation that is coming up behind us. And one of those ways is that we be very careful about any teaching, social, religious, political, or otherwise, that begins to insinuate that the nuclear family might actually be able to accomplish what we know only the good news of Jesus is meant to do. And this kind of thinking is on the rise among conservative evangelical Christians. And so beware of it. Luke 18, 29 and through 30 won't countenance it if the kingdom of god is so valuable that people are to be able to be willing to leave their families in order to propagate that kingdom then surely we have to order our priorities accordingly even if we're not called ourselves to leave our families now before we leave this happy is the man or woman whose nuclear family overlaps with the kingdom of god right happy is the man or woman whose spouse 
and children and parents are believers so that you need not make the choice that Jesus is speaking about here. But where that's not so, and increasingly it isn't in our culture, we have to be prepared to obey and serve and prefer God rather than man. Now let me say thirdly and finally that this passage gives us an example of obedience. It gives us an implication about the value of family versus the value of the kingdom. But then also it leaves us with a promise, a promise. This is really the main point, isn't it? The main point of this passage is to give us a promise. Namely, that those who leave family and home for the sake of the kingdom of God have a reward. Namely, that those who go to the mission field or those who, because of opposition in their family, have to choose God rather than family have a reward. That's the promise. Jesus says, if you leave home and family for my sake, you'll receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So it's actually a twofold promise, isn't it? Many times the blessings at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Just think about both of those before we finish. First, Jesus says that those who leave home and family to follow him have a reward at this time. Namely, whether you leave wife or brothers or parents or children, you'll receive many times as much of those things in this life. Now, what does that mean? Surely it doesn't mean if you go to the mission field that you get to have a new wife and a whole new family, right? That's not what he means. So what does he mean? What does Jesus mean when he promises a new family to those who leave their family for the sake of the kingdom? Well, I think it's quite obvious that he's speaking about the church, right? Isn't that what he means? If you are serving the kingdom of God, you'll never be without a home and a family. Because the kingdom of God is also the family of God, right? The kingdom of God is a grouping of local churches that are filled with people who will be for you brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and so on. And so says Jesus, if your family disowns you for following Christ, you won't be an orphan. You won't be without a family. You will indeed have fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters. You will indeed have a home. And this promise in verse 30 must be especially relevant for people in places like China and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Iran, where following Christ often means being disowned by your family. This is a great promise for those folks. He promises them that when they are faced with the decision of choosing Christ or family, If they choose Christ, they won't be without a family. Now, most of us have never faced anything like this. But if we did, we wouldn't be orphans because we have a family of God, the church. And for some of us, even here, that's precious. Because even here, while we have none of us been disowned by our families for following Christ, some of us have families who may keep their distance from us because we follow Christ. Ever since we begin to change they begin to back off because they're convicted of their sins as they see us having left those same sins. And so they stay at arm's length from us, maybe relationally, perhaps geographically or physically as well. The closeness is not always there. And so for some of us, while we still have mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, it doesn't really feel like family anymore, at least not the way we wish. And yet, if we're willing to accept 
God's promise, we have a family in the church. We have a family sitting next to us in these pews. If you choose to follow Christ in spite of family obstacles, he'll make good on his promise. And he will give you sisters and brothers and children and parents like you could have never imagined. That's what he's saying here. And we should say also that the promises of verse 29 must be especially sweet for our missionaries. These promises in 29 and 30 are things that we can pray that God would fulfill for our missionaries because they must actually physically leave their homes and their families. They actually physically have to do what Jesus is referring to here in order to obey his call on their lives. And when they do, surely they feel incredibly alone. In fact, I've been to Ethiopia three times and India once, and every single time I get on one of those planes, I sit there and I say to myself, what am I doing? I'll never do this again. I feel so lonely. And I'm only going to be gone for two weeks. So imagine how the full-time missionaries feel when they leave. They have literally done a Luke 18, 28. And yet because they have, God will keep for them the promises of verses 29 and 30. Because the whole reason they're going is for the sake of the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God manifests itself in local families called churches. And so as the missionaries do the very thing that they've gone to do, as they bring people to Christ and organize them into little churches, God is not only saving souls, but he's fulfilling the promises of verses 29 and 30 for those missionaries. The very act of them winning people to the kingdom of God grows a spiritual family that surrounds them. The very act of winning people to Christ produces for the missionaries fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and children for those missionaries who have left all those things behind to follow Jesus. God doesn't leave his missionaries as orphans. He raises up a family full of people who look differently and talk differently and dress differently but have the same father and who love one another and the missionaries as family. And so we mustn't ever allow the fear of loneliness to keep us from serving God. Whether it means going to the mission field or following Christ in some way here in this country where you know that your family can't be with you or your family will not be with you in the way of blessing you and supporting you. We mustn't ever fear that. God won't leave us as orphans. God will not forget us. He will go with us and he promises that he'll give us a family here in this life not just in heaven but at this time as well verse 30 and then as we finish the promise of verse 30 also applies not just to this time but the age to come the age to come what jesus is saying at the end of the verse is simply this don't fret about leaving your home and your family to follow my calling if you do you have eternal life and that's far better than anything you may forfeit for the gospel's sake now when he says that You serve him and you get eternal life. He's not saying that forfeiting your home or your family or forfeiting anything else for that matter earns eternal life. No, eternal life's not earned. It's not a reward given for doing what's right. It's a gift earned by Jesus, paid for by Jesus. So he's not promising heaven in exchange for leaving your home and family like some sort of barter agreement. But what he is saying is that if you are willing to leave home and family for the sake of his kingdom, then you must be serious about him. If you're willing to leave home and family to spread the good news of Christ, that's probably a good indicator that you believe that news yourself and that you are therefore heaven-bound. And if you are, Jesus says something like this to you. 
Heaven is your home. Eternal life is your reward. So the sacrificing of your hometown and your mother's cooking, it's not as big a deal as it seems. Or the idea of allowing your children to go to Timbuktu for Jesus' sake, where you'll only see them every four years and only see your grandchildren every four years. It's not as bad as it feels if you're going to be with them forever in heaven. Or he may be saying you're middle-aged and the idea of leaving your adult children here in America while you move away isn't the end of the world because you've got heaven at the end of the road. It's just what Paul said, right? Our afflictions in this present life are light and momentary in comparison to eternal glory. And so we mustn't hesitate to lay our lives on the line for Christ. We have eternity to rest. We have eternity to enjoy and to be a family. But on this earth, we have only three score years and ten. On this earth, we have only 70 or 80 years to live for Jesus and to advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth or just to the end of the street. So give up your comforts and your wealth and your home, if need be, and your proximity to family, if need be, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he says, if you will do that, If you will just serve the kingdom of God, whatever it costs you, then you will surely receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life.